Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it had come to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we stand each week as we read your word to honor you, to make our hearts attentive, to apply your truth to our lives in obedience and in love. And so, Father, we ask that you would stir us this morning through the preaching of your word, that your beauty and your truth and your plan of the ages that has been revealed would would spark things in us that are eternal and that we would hear and obey you. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would anoint Pastor Ben as he comes and preaches to us this morning. We're thankful for this time. Lord, come and apply your truth to us as only the Holy Spirit can do. In Jesus' name. Amen. The children are dismissed. Myself on. Uh, good to see you all this morning. Rainy day, fall day. Uh, good to be here with you. Uh, Gospel of Matthew. Here we are, second week uh, in the first book of our New Testaments. I'd encourage you to grab one of these Matthew Scripture journals. We've got these out on the ta- uh, bookshelf back there, $5 a piece. We're going to be in this book for probably more than a year. And I've found that these scripture journals are just a huge way to be able to be in the text, make notes, not feel like you're marking up your best Bible, make all kinds of notes as you're going through this. So uh, if you want to spend time in Matthew, really encourage you to grab one of those off the bookshelf for, for $5. Uh, I'm excited about being in the Gospels together for a while. What I love about the Gospels and what I think actually all of us as pastors really love about the Gospels. We were, we were actually just talking about this this week as we were doing some sermon prep time together. What, what we love about the Gospels, and part of why we want to keep coming back to the Gospels over and over again in our preaching here at Summit, is, is that we, we can't read these books. We can't read a book like the Gospel of Matthew uh, without just being confronted by the reality of who Jesus actually is. We just come face to face when we read the Gospels with the real Jesus, not 
flannel graph Jesus that you grew up with in Sunday school or conservative Jesus or liberal Jesus or pop culture Jesus that's talked about at the Grammy Awards. We, we come face to face with the real Jesus on these pages. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed it, but we have this tendency to kind of create Jesus in our own image often. Uh, our ideas about who he is and what it means to follow him, often those things can be just a reflection of ourselves. We, we want Jesus on our own terms often, don't we? Uh, we want Jesus to show up in our life when we want him there. We, um, we want him to look like us, to talk like us, to like the things that we like, to kind of sit in the co-pilot seat alongside of us. Uh, but when we get to the Gospels, when we get to these stories about Jesus in the Scriptures, all of our assumptions, all of the wrong ideas that we have about who he is, all of the misconceptions that we have about what it means to follow him and to believe in him, to trust him, you know, these things that, that actually a lot of us struggle with, with being apathetic or not really making Jesus important in our lives. When we come to the Gospels, all of those things really get put under a microscope for us. They get, they get analyzed. We have to look at what we're actually doing with Jesus. And so our framework for him, the the position and the priority, the place that he holds in our life, that, that just gets challenged when we meet him on the pages of the Gospels. And so we have to, when we come to the Gospels, really respond to the reality of who this Jesus is. You, you can't encounter the real Jesus and just stay neutral about him. He doesn't allow that. The things that Jesus said, what he taught, what he claimed about himself, his death, his resurrection, the way that history has been transformed by this Jesus doesn't allow us to kind of just ignore him. I mean, we can do that. We can ignore him. We can oppose him in our hearts or we can embrace him. But on some level, we've got to respond to this Jesus, don't we? We've got to do something with him. Uh, My uh, oldest daughter, Ava, uh, a couple weeks ago turned 13. At 13, I've got a teenager in the house now. I feel old. I am 40 next year, so that'll be the, the big milestone. I remember 13 years ago, we brought this little bundle home from the hospital, and I'm sure that if many of you have kids or have the experience of bringing kids home from the hospital, there's kind of this funny experience of leaving the hospital, and you're kind of looking around at people while you're holding this baby, and you're, you're looking at the baby, you're looking at them, and you're saying, is there an instruction manual that comes with this, Right? It's, it's amazing that people even let you out of the hospital with that child. I thought that they were going to send us with a nurse or some type of chaperone to take this child home, but they didn't. It, 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 and that's, there, there's this feeling of intimidation on our first that, that I felt. And that first child, it just utterly changes your life. I mean, just utterly changes it. And I don't mean just in all the joyful ways, right? There's this way, whether it's the dirty diapers or the long sleepless nights, all of the, the different challenges, you start to feel like a zombie, you start to feel like you have no idea what you're doing with your life. All of that is just a massive change in the life of a new parent. And so when this baby arrives in your world, it just turns it upside down. This new thing, this new arrival in your life, this, this intrusion into your world, it messes up this entire thing called my kingdom, doesn't it? And the life the way that I had been used to, the way that I had lived it, where my life was, was comfortable, where it was under my control, all of that with the arrival of this little baby changed. It all got toppled over. And as a parent, you have to realize something. Number one, I'm not in control anymore. Number two, I am no longer the priority in this house. (laughs) And so how am I going to respond to this reality that's in front of me? How am I going to respond to this arrival that's here? 
Am I, am I going to chafe against it and, and hold on to life on my terms, life the way that I've lived it, where it's centered on me and my will and my desires and my control? Or am I going to bend and allow my life to actually be changed and transformed and on some level dictated by this new life, this new arrival in my life, and allow all kinds of good and transformative and yet painful and really hard things to happen in my life. How am I going to respond to this baby? Well, I think Matthew chapter 2 is asking us actually a very similar question about a very similar but yet very different baby. I know that a lot of you thought Matthew 2 was Christmas. Wasn't it weird to hear that passage read outside of Christmas time? Um, Story of the wise man, super familiar, super iconic story. Even if you didn't grow up in church, you're familiar with the story of the wise men. And so we tend to sort of think we know what this story is all about. But some of the benefit this morning of having this story pulled out of the nostalgia and the sentimentality that we feel around Christmas is that we actually get to look at it a bit different. I mean, the reason that Matthew included this story in his gospel, and by the way, Matthew was the only author to actually include this narrative of the wise men. The reason that Matthew gave it to us is not just to tell us how to set up our nativity sets, right? I mean, he he gave it to us for a particular reason. In fact, the center of this story isn't the, the three kings from the Orient that we tend to sing about. It's actually totally centered on the arrival of the one true king and highlights our response to his kingship. The question that Matthew is pressing on us through this story is, is what do we do? How do we respond when the king and his kingdom come? How do we respond when the king and his kingdom come? Come. And so here's what I want to do this morning. As, as Matthew tells this story, there are three realities of Jesus' kingship that he wants us to see. And they're woven together in the story with three different responses to Jesus' kingship. So I'm just going to kind of walk through the story. And as we go along, I want to highlight those three things for you three realities of Jesus' kingship and three responses to his kingship. And we'll see those realities and responses woven through the story as we go through this morning. So grab your Bibles, open it. You ready to dive in together? Matthew chapter 2. Let's just begin reading the story here together, beginning in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, or, or magi is another word that's used there, from the east came to Jerusalem Now, right away, like any good storyteller, Matthew introduces us to three of the main characters that we're going to see throughout this story, Jesus, the wise men, and Herod. Now, let's start here with the wise men. What do do we know about them? Well, actually, we, we don't know a whole lot about these wise men. All that Matthew tells us is that they are from the east. Now, that could have been Babylon. It could have been somewhere on the Arabian Peninsula. We're actually not sure. But Matthew doesn't tell us, notice, he doesn't tell us that these are kings. That they're magi. That was an addition later based on some other factors here, okay? So they are magi. Well, And there weren't just three of them. Matthew actually doesn't tell us how many came. So what are magi? Well, In the book of Daniel, if you go back to Daniel, actually in the courts of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, there were magi. Daniel talks about them. 
These magi were wise men, they were counselors, they were astrologers, they were magicians, they, they were dream interpreters, they were very spiritual men. They probably would have fit well in the Northwest, right? They were hyper-spiritual. And it, it's quite possible, scholars believe, that, that, that during Israel's exile, while they were in Babylon, the, the magi had through that period acquired some copies of the Hebrew scriptures and they had this awareness that Yahweh, the, the God of the Hebrews, that the Most High God was, was actually up to something in the world. There, there was something that he was moving forward and so they had this sense from whatever scriptures it, it was that they read, whatever natural signs they were looking to in the heavens, there, there was this sense, and I think as well, prompted by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in their life, they had this sense that, that Yahweh was on the cusp of sending his king into the world. And all of that made them pack up their belongings and travel hundreds of miles a trip that would have probably taken at least two months to make, all the way to Jerusalem looking for this particular king. So Jesus is born. He's the son of David, the newborn king. He's the rightful heir to the throne. And he arrives, and in Matthew's account, the first worshipers, the, 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 the first people to come and pay tribute to this king are outsiders from the nations around Israel. They're outsiders. Now, why is Matthew, what's Matthew trying to tell us through this? Well, after tracing in chapter 1, you remember the entire Jewish history of Jesus through the Davidic line. Jesus is a Jew. He's a very, very Jewish king. At this point in the story, Matthew is trying to remind us, he's trying to say to us that Jesus' rule, his reign, his kingdom, his kingship, it all extends way beyond the borders of this tiny strip of land on the coast of the Mediterranean. Jesus' kingship is bigger than just Israel. Look, look with me at verse 2 here. These wise men came from Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For, pay attention to this, we saw his star. When it rose, if you have your scripture journal, just circle that word rose because it actually carries with it this connotation of worship. It's not just the nations, but the heavens themselves are actually bowing before this Jesus. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Church, even the stars are being moved by the arrival of this king. Even, even the heavenly bodies are being bent toward him. And so, Matthew is saying he is far more than just the king of the Jews. He's the cosmic king. He's the universal king. And so this is the first reality that, that, that Matthew wants us to get about Jesus' kingship. It is universal. And so you can write that down if you're a note taker. Number one, Jesus' kingship is universal. And church, this is, this is so important to get. We, we live in this cultural moment. Ryan touched on this a little bit last week. We, we live in this cultural moment, in this era where your truth can be your truth and my truth can be my truth, but there is no such thing as universal truth. And Jesus shows up, shows up and in, in fact, he's born, and without even a word coming out of his, his mouth, he's asserting the universality of his rule, that he is the universal king. He's not just a king. He is the king. 
And that claim is just massively exclusive, isn't it? And Christianity, often, maybe you've experienced this, it can just, in our era, come off as um, exclusive, arrogant, narrow, ignorant. When we say that, that Jesus is the universal king. But church, listen, there's, there's a flip side here of what, what Matthew is saying. Jesus is the king. He, he, he's the king for everyone. But listen to this, anyone is also welcome. And so Christianity has this dual reality of being incredibly exclusive. Jesus is the universal king and yet utterly inclusive. The whole universe is welcome through him. You know, it's interesting as you, as you look out, I don't know if you've ever thought of this before, but look out at the major religions of the world, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, all of them for, for centuries have, have not had the power centers of that religion, the center of faith and belief. None of them have moved. They've stayed the same, whether it's Jerusalem, whether it's the Middle East, whether it's East Asia, whether it's India. They've, they've, they've all stayed the same. And yet, look at Christianity. And this little movement that started in the backwoods of the Roman Empire that, that coalesced in Jerusalem, that spread out from there to Europe to North Africa that moved from there to having its center in Rome and continental Europe and then England and then spread across the Atlantic to America and now in the 21st century has the center where the church is flourishing and growing the fastest is in Asia and in Africa and in South America. Christianity has always moved. It's always moved for 2,000 years. And Christianity is by far the most diverse religion on the planet. I mean, not just the most diverse religion, it's the most diverse human community. And that's because we have this king who loves and welcomes the nations to himself. To all who are weary and need rest, come. His kingship is universal. But I'll tell you, that, that authority of a universal king, it doesn't always sit well with us, does it? Look back with me here at, at Matthew's story. So these, these, these magi come from the east and they, they come into Jerusalem with their crew and they, they start asking around for the king of the Jews. But then look with me at verse 3 and see Herod's response here. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. Now, Remember where we're at in history as Matthew's writing this. Uh, in, in 63 BC, 60, 60 years or so before these events of Jesus' birth happened, the Romans under General Pompey had come and marched on Jerusalem. They'd captured the city. They'd brought it into the Roman Empire under Roman rule. And everywhere the Romans went, what they did was actually take local leadership and put them into place as puppet kings, kings that would accomplish the will of the empire in that particular location. And Herod was one of those. Herod was actually barely a Jew. His mother was Arabian. His dad was a Moabite who'd converted to Judaism, but he was going to fulfill the directives of the empire. And so as they put him in place, Herod was actually known in that moment as the king of the Jews. And so you can imagine when these wise men show up and say they're looking for the king of the Jews, right? They're, they're looking for the same one that Herod knows actually is not his rightful line. 
Number two, the, the, the heir to that is not in his household. You can imagine what's going on inside of him. The future of his rule, future of his power and his control and his kingship are all in jeopardy. And so when he heard this, he was troubled. Church, the news of Jesus' kingship, it will always come into conflict with the kingdoms of our world, and it will especially come into conflict with this little kingdom that we rule over called our kingdom of self. See, Jesus shows up in our world, and as Abraham Kuyper wrote, there, there isn't a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Jesus, the universal king, does not cry, mine. He says that over, over everything. And, and we hear that as human beings. And what do we do? We chafe at it. And human beings, we, we don't want to be controlled. We, we don't want to be told what to do. We don't want authority over us. We want self-sovereignty. I mean, if you don't believe that, you probably haven't experienced kids, right? We, we don't want authority. And this message that Jesus is king, it just... It cuts against everything in this culture we live in where self is the ultimate sovereign. It cuts against everything inside of us. We, we want to hold on to our rule and our control and our power and our own kingship. And yet Jesus, the, the rightful ruler, comes into our life and he says, I am king. And so if you think that when Jesus shows up in your life, all that he really wants for you is just to show up at church on Sundays and kind of clean yourself up a little bit so that you, you're not such an annoyance to him, if you think that's all that he is after, you've missed his kingship. You're getting Christianity wrong. Christianity is about the kingship of Jesus overthrowing the kingship of self. And Jesus coming and conquering and, and overthrowing all of our ambition and all of our desire for power and control and self-sovereignty in, in what we do and how we live and how we spend our money and how we use our time. All of that, Jesus wants to overthrow as the rightful ruler and universal king. And I can respond like Herod and I can do everything possible to oppose that. I mean, we're going to see that more next week as, as Herod actually does everything possible to hold on to his power and his position. And, and I can do that, right? I can grasp for my control and my independence and my rule, or I can embrace Jesus. But I can't do both of those things. Jesus is after all of us. There isn't a square inch of your life over which Jesus doesn't cry, mine. Recently, I've been walking around. I don't know if you've seen these t-shirts. Have any of you seen these Y'all Need Jesus t-shirts around? It's kind of a popular thing. I was at the fair last week, and I saw like five of them. Y'all Need Jesus. And it was funny. It was making me laugh. But I was saying, what what does that mean, Y'all Need Jesus? And I realized, you know, really the point of it is, hey, you're a little bit grumpy. You're a little bit down. You you need to be nicer. You'd be a little bit better person. You, You need Jesus. And as I was thinking about it, I thought, you know, I don't really need Jesus all that much all the time to be a kinder person. Sometimes I just need coffee. Y'all need coffee. Like, not walking around with that t-shirt. 
you, you don't necessarily need Jesus for that. And let me tell you, Jesus is not showing up here. He's not showing up at this church just to make us better people. The, the real Jesus is actually going to come in and not just give you a little bit of an upgrade. He's going to totally upend your life. Because he is graciously trying to get you off the throne of it. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis gives this picture. I've shared this before because I, I think it's really helpful for us. Think of yourself as a house. And when we come to Jesus, we sort of think that Jesus is going to come do a little repair project with us. Like he's going to come and fix our drains. He's going to patch our holes. He's going to fix the roof, put a new coat of paint on, and we're good. We're good to go. And yet, Lewis says, we, that's what we're expecting. And so suddenly when Jesus starts knocking out walls and putting in new floors and putting in a new wing over here, we're like, what are you doing? I didn't sign up for this. And yet, Jesus is up to something. Lewis says he's actually making you into a much different house than you ever imagined. You thought you were becoming just a nice, comfortable country cottage, but he is making you into a palace a place from which he can rule and reign. He's the universal king. And that can be scary, can it? I mean, some of you feel those places where Jesus is coming in and knocking out rooms and changing things up, where he's wanting to press in and rule and reign. And so the question that comes up for us is, do we, can we really trust ourselves to him? If he's the universal, powerful king, is he really safe to give ourselves to? And Lewis says in a moment in the Chronicles of Narnia about Aslan, this great ruler, and I think it's relevant about Jesus, that he says there's no way this Jesus, this Aslan, is safe. But what he is, is good. He's good. He's a good king. And that's what Matthew actually shows us next year. Turn, turn back to the text with me. Matthew points us there by reminding us that Jesus' kingship isn't just universal and powerful. His kingship is also humble and it's good. So that's point two if you want to write it down. Number one is kingship is universal and yet our response to it is often to, to oppose it, right? To chafe against it. But number two, his kingship is humble and it's good. And where do I see that? Well, keep, keep reading here in the text with me. Herod Herod's troubled by this news. Remember, all of Jerusalem with him is troubled. Verse 4, And assembling all of the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ... Now, remember, that's not Jesus' last name. It's his title, the Anointed One. The Messiah is what it means. So he inquired of them where the Messiah, the Christ, was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Herod gathers the most biblically learned men that he's got, his, his priests, his theologians, his scholars. He, he gathers them all up and he says to them, where is the Messiah going to be born? And without even skipping a beat, all of them open up their Bibles. They turn to the book of Micah. They turn to the book of 2 Samuel and they say, Bethlehem, Bethlehem. They knew their Bibles. And Bethlehem was a tiny town about seven miles outside of Jerusalem, and it's just about a, as obscure of a place as you can imagine. Think like Eatonville, maybe, maybe even I was thinking LB. I mean, this is, this is obscurity. 
In fact, Micah, in the passage that Matthew quotes here, actually emphasizes how small this place is. Micah 5, chapter 5, verse 2, he says it was too little to be among the clans of Judah. But what makes this place significant, and Matthew actually changes the quote from Micah a little bit to stress this, what's significant about it is it's not only the town that David was born in, but now it has become the birthplace of the ultimate king, the the very son of of David. And, and Bethlehem is just this, it's this portrait really of the, the type of ex- obscurity that Jesus arrives in. I mean, the universal king, like stars are bending to worship him, right? And yet, yet look at the simplicity of this. There's no pomp. There's no parade that happens. There's, there are no royal servants that are attending to him. There's no, no military guard watching him. There's no fanfare, there's no hype, there's no social media campaign that's run. And there's there's literally nothing impressive about his arrival. This is just glory veiled by ordinariness. And it's part of why the chief priests and the scribes actually miss what's going on. And you see that in the story as we read. They're they're not mentioned after this. Keep reading with me, verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. There's no mention of the chief priests and scribes. They, they don't move. They were totally indifferent to the arrival of this king. And you know what's scary? It was actually these, these guys that knew their Bibles the best that, that missed it. That, that couldn't see through the obscurity, through the ordinariness, through the humility of this arrival of Jesus. Now, I, I love Mount Rainier. Mount Rainier is probably one of my favorite parts about living in this area. Okay, the fact that we get to drive out our door most days and have some glimpse of that mountain is incredible. But what I, what I can't stand, and maybe you've experienced this sometimes, is when we have visitors. Have you ever had a visitor come from out of town? They spend the weekend, and you're excited. The first time to the Northwest, and what happens? The whole weekend, clouds. And you're driving down Point Ruston with them. You're looking at the back of Commencement Bay, and you're saying, there it is. There is right behind there. There it is. There's this mountain, but they can't see it. They can't see it. It's, it's veiled. Now, the mountain's size, its glory, its beauty, what it is, hasn't diminished in the least. And yet, it's veiled to their eyes. They can't see it. Church, that's often the way that Jesus' kingship feels. Because Jesus is this king from this ragamuffin, ragtag neighborhood, this backwoods of the Roman Empire, that's often the way that his kingdom looks. It's often the type of people that he draws into his kingdom, but so often it means that the glory of it is veiled. There, There are some who just can't see it, and they ignore it, and they scoff at it, and they're just not interested in it. It's not there. There's nothing there. Maybe some of you have even been a part of this community for a bit, and you're looking around going, man, this is super ordinary. Some really not-too-impressive people here. There's some not-too-impressive things happening. I'm, I'm just not impressed. You're right. There's nothing very impressive about what happens here. 
what happens in the church, and yet, yet we embrace it because the church was meant to be just like her Savior, totally ordinary in a way that veils the beauty and the glory and the wonder of what God is actually doing behind the clouds. And so don't miss the glory for the clouds, whether it's Jesus or his church. There's a second thing I want you to, to notice here, and it's that Jesus' kingship is, is, is humble. We saw that its glory is veiled, but his kingship here is also really, really, really good. And Matthew here is actually intentionally contrasting Jesus with Herod at the, at the end of verse 6. Now, what, is, what does Jesus say here about this ruler who's going to come? Verse, verse 6. He says, he will shepherd my people Israel. If you've got your scripture drawn, I want you to underline that word shepherd. Shepherd. Now Herod was known as just a ruthless and brutal leader. And we're going to see that next week in this campaign of child massacre that that he decrees. But the history books also bear that out. He was a ruthless king. And that's contrasted here by Matthew's words about Jesus, the shepherd king. And far from being this domineering tyrant, Jesus is a shepherd. He's a shepherd. And that's just massively good news for us because Jesus is the kind of king who cares for and protects and feeds and waters and rescues his people. He's a good king. And he's a king who, who wasn't just willing to be born in obscurity. He was a king who was actually willing to die in obscurity. A king who was willing to go right all the way to death for the people he loved. To go and give up his life on the cross. And you know what that meant. It meant being mocked and beaten and scorned and exiled. Being put in the place of sinful man in order to bear sin for us. Christianity itself is built on this reality of the cross, right? What Paul in 1 Corinthians calls the foolishness of the cross. It's this upside-down way that this king shows his power in weakness. He shows his strength in laying down his life on behalf of your sin and mine. It's it's a glory that's veiled, right? And, And all too often, people miss it. They ignore it. But the wise men don't here, do they? Keep reading with me. Verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them until it came to the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. One commentator translated that phrase. They were, they were thrilled to bits. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And when the, when the universal, humble, good king and his kingdom comes, comes crashing into our world, when we, when we come face to face with the reality of Jesus in the Gospels, this, this real Jesus, like when you're really faced with the place that Jesus has in, our, in your life, where he fits, how you're going to respond to him, you can either continue to oppose him, like Herod did, you can ignore him like the scribes did, or you can embrace him. You can worship him the way that these wise men did. 
See, these guys saw by God's grace and, and th- really through the eyes of faith, God granted them something that, that's supernatural for every one of us. They, they looked at this baby. Actually, Jesus was probably about two years old uh, by the time this, this happened. They looked at this two-year-old, born in a very average town, in a very average family, living in a very average place. They, they saw through the eyes of faith that this Jesus was anything but average. He was the universal, humble, good, and this is point three, glorious. He was the glorious king. He was worth everything. And seeing that reality for them, they they responded by willingly, joyfully laying down all of their wealth and their treasures and their gifts and even themselves before him. Verse 11 Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Friends, what are you doing with Jesus? What are you doing with this Jesus? For two weeks now in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew's been telling us that this Jesus is the long-awaited, universal, humble, good, glorious King. He's the one who brings fulfillment and forgiveness and the felt presence of God. In, in Him, those things have arrived. He's not just a good moral teacher. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a nice human being. And Matthew is, is saying that He is King. And so what are you doing with Him? And this is what the Gospels press on us, isn't it? If Jesus really is who He says He is, if Jesus really is who these authors declare Him to be, if He really is what Matthew is saying, if He really is King, what are you going to do? And I'm pressing that on you, whether you are a Christian here this morning, you're not a Christian, wherever you're at in your walk with God, we've got to ask ourselves this question. What what place is Jesus having in my life? Are, Are you just playing around with Him? Are you on the fence thinking you can kind of fit into two kingdoms, maintain your kingdom of self and the kingdom of God as well? Are you going to just kind of keep Jesus on retainer at the margins of your life? Will you you continue to just chafe against his kingship and and hold on to, to life the way that you've done it up to this point, centered on your desires and your control and your will and your actions? Or will you bend to the good and humble and gracious and self-sacrificing rule of this glorious king? Will you bend your life to be changed and transformed in all kinds of good and incredible and yet often painful and difficult ways as you submit to the lordship, the kingship of this Jesus? The king of kings has come. How are you going to respond to him? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your great grace to us. Thank you that in Jesus, the King of the ages has come. And he's given himself to welcome us, to redeem us. Lord, would you search us this morning? There's all kinds of ways that each one of us can marginalize you, can have corners of our hearts where we're not submitted to you, where we're, we're grasping on to our kingdom of self and not responding to your arrival in submission and worship. 
Lord, we need the eyes of faith that the wise men had. We need the grace that you gave to them. And so, Lord, grant it to us this morning that we would see your glory and love you deeper than we ever have. In Jesus' name, amen.